Welcome to This is for the CV, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit. This is a podcast by Anthony and Rebecca, two professors in communication and political science, chatting about politics, pop culture, and the things in between. In this month's episode, we are joined by Dr. Ryan Neville Shepard. He is an assistant professor of communication studies and the director of graduate studies at the University of Arkansas. He speaks with us about third-party candidates, conspiracy theories, and his path to education as a career. Hello, Anthony. Hello, Rebecca. And hello, Dr. Ryan Neville Shepard. Hello, how are you? Great, thank you for joining us. Yeah, we're good. Thank you. Yeah, how are you? I'm good. Finishing out the quarantine, uh, finally into our summer, you know, in our profession, uh, uh, we work really hard and then uh, eventually the breaks get hit and we have a week, a week or two to just sort of get our, our minds together. That's where I am. Nice. Mm-hmm. What are you doing to take time and step away? Housework, stuff that I've been avoiding for a year. So uh, I have a really nice garden that's not going to make, nice. you know, good audio time. Um, but uh, painting, you know, just yard work, stuff that's uh, uh, absolutely not academia and has nothing to do with politics. Mm. I mm-hmm. love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you take an intentional break away from politics. Uh, and email and, nice. uh, and nice. work. You know, we're not paid over the summer, but I think we uh, sometimes work twice as hard. Uh, so I'm definitely taking a, a break. Good for you. Anthony, yeah. are you taking a break from politics? I, I mean, I, I have, especially from last year to this year, just because I was teaching political calm and we were living through, it's just, it's, I was ramped up. And mm-hmm. then, you know, when you try to say, oh, oh here comes the sixth, oh, I got to ramp back up, let's see. But no, yeah, I've been, I've been uh, not as engaged with it in a, in a good way, I think. Uh, in the past two or three months? I was doing better, but then the Texas legislative session, we're here in Texas, so it took, mm. a, took a hard turn, really ramped some stuff up. So I, I got back into that. They're voting at 3 a.m. I'm checking and looking at what's happening with, you know, like the fabric of democracy, for example. <laughs> so, but, but, but that's over for a little while, right? They're back yes, in yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the governor will call a special session because they have to for redistricting purposes, but he said he's going to put the voter bill back up there. So it'll eventually pass, I think. Good, good old Texas Democrats and their walkout strategy. It was, it was, it was dramatic second. and awesome because they were um, very slowly trickling out. So the ah. sort of the minority, <laughs> minority leader was like, here's what we're going to do. But if they're on to us, they can call people back because we don't have the numbers. So just like, don't talk to anyone slowly little by little and then when there was only 30 left they were like go 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 and people literally got up and ran out it was so dramatic and awesome <laughs> that's fantastic i wonder what the first few people said it was like i think i got food poisoning in that party right that becomes- <laughs> right. the cheese <laughs> like, yeah. gotta go. <laughs> i have to return some videotapes right like, i'm, I'm out of here <laughs> yeah i got some vhs's that overdue gotta go that is that is probably the best excuse for that demographic like 70 year old <laughs> probably sense to me. <laughs> like i gotta hit the blockbuster 
For real. It's just my favorite line from American Psycho. Like Christian Bale was always just like, I got to go return some videotapes. Like, I'm out of here. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's really funny. Well, we are um, very happy to have you here. And thank you for your time, especially in your coveted summer window. Right. We really mm -hmm. do appreciate it. And the first that's thing great. that we usually ask um, our guests before we dive in to your research and kind of what inspires you is what your path to education was and you know why you are in academia. Cool, that's, that's a great question. I, uh, I grew up uh, at a pretty poor family in Appalachia. So I'm a first generation <clears throat> high school graduate and college graduate and then you know everything else. So I uh, fell into debate in high school, I think as uh, a lot of communication scholars did through speech and forensics. And you know, a lot of my friends with a similar background, we all thought uh, we'd just be sort of stuck in our, our small towns for life. Um, you know, we used to make jokes about pumping gas, but that's not a profession anymore. Mm. Um, but we, we sort of thought we were just sort of bound to our small town life. Uh, and I think debate is a really amazing experience for people who are curious about politics and curious about self-presentation. Um, I traveled, you know, the East Coast and sort of realized what was beyond uh, Western Maine, which is where I grew up, um, and eventually debated a lot of kids in, 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 you know, Massachusetts and New York, and then sort of started getting the idea about college, especially as I started winning uh, some awards. I was always, uh, I'd say, above average, but not the best. So, uh, you know, the people who were beating me were going to Cornell and they're going to all these amazing schools. So they're dropping names of schools that I'd never heard of, right? That I actually thought were community colleges, but are some of the best colleges in the country. And so I, I apply to those schools, uh, get some scholarships, uh, get really excited about that. And I ended up going to Bates College in Maine. Um, I, uh, I don't know if you're watching, uh, what is it, uh, Mayor of Easttown? Just finished it. Well, Bates College gets a shout out at the end as the professor drives off in his Jaguar to a one-year position and she says, Bates College, never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's where I went. And uh, uh, again, it was, it was debate that sort of got me. I was a double major first in rhetoric and then in political science. And so I ended up debating in a, for a team that had a pretty sizable endowments and sent me to some really wonderful places. So all the top universities in America, they sent me to Cambridge and Oxford every year. They sent me to, uh, where else did I debate? Like Singapore, you know, all over Canada. So I, I was really fortunate and got really lucky and debated some really brilliant people. And I got to the end of my undergraduate career and was thinking that I wanted to go to law school and eventually got some cold feet I uh, worked for a law firm for a year and almost every attorney I talked to was like, you should go to grad school. You should not <laughs> be a lawyer. They're miserable. Um, ah, <laughs> uh, just so many different like people on like their second or third marriage, which isn't bad. They're just like, I don't have time to have like a, a happy life. And so, you know, I, I was the youngest sibling of family of four brothers. And so I was really good at like, watching what other people were doing and making mistakes at doing and then telling me not to do it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all those attorneys were like, don't become an attorney. <laughs> and uh, so I went to the University of Kansas uh, for a master's degree. I stayed for a PhD and eventually took a job at sort of a satellite commuter campus in Indiana. 
Uh, it's called Indiana University, Purdue University, Columbus. That's five names in a single title. Um, but uh, it, it was a wonderful campus of 1,500 students, mostly first-generation college students, working adults. Um, I stayed there for five years, and I am where I am today. Um, after staying there, almost going up for tenure, but deciding to leave at the last minute. So that's that's who I am in a nutshell. That's my journey. Nice. Uh, I can talk about my research if you want, but that's <laughs> more of a fun question of how we get to where we are. And I think a lot of us are really thankful for debate. It was a golden ticket. Yeah. Did you debate, Anthony? I did not. But as soon as I went to grad school, I'm looking around. I'm like, man, these people who are you can the, always on, tell on the debate squad mm -hmm. their papers are better than mine right like i'm like they're, they're they're saying they're saying really erudite things in class right now like i need to go hang with them right like all it of was... my communication professors <clears throat> in undergrad came from debate like just every single one of them and i was like i've never been around people who talk so good you know and it was <laughs> that's why <laughs> i remember uh one of my best friends and roommates uh his name is ben warner he's at the university of missouri he came from the policy tradition and they read very quickly and they speak very quickly. And I remember in grad school being like, that dude can read a book in a day. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what skills you develop and where you develop them, but it wasn't my form of debate. And, you know, here I am on like the first chapter of uh, some Kenneth Burke book and oh! ben, ben has crushed a book in like a day and understands it better than anybody else. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody's uh, reading Burke in a day. <laughs> I hope not. I'm going to just break ben out grammar Warner. of motives. Let's do this. <laughs> Look him up. He can read that quickly. It's amazing. It is amazing. Hey, that was a communication joke that I actually got, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Even I know Burke. <laughs> I teach political uh, yeah, yeah. science. So, yeah, <clears throat> so, some of the um, theory talk goes, Foof, but then some of it every now and again. I'm working on it. I catch it. There's, there's a lot of overlap, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I try to explain this to people who are like, what is communication? And I, I'm like, everything's interdisciplinary now. And so, you know, I dabble, especially my third party stuff that we're going to probably talk about in a bit. Um, you know, it, it started as a, 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 an interest in political science. Like I took a class on third parties, then finally started studying communication, thinking like, Everybody just wants to talk about presidents and everybody just wants to talk about Democrats and Republicans. They have no idea what's outside. Um, and if they do have an idea of what's outside, they're not interested in it and they should be. And so, uh, you know, we, we all start with an interest, I think, in the various fields. That's what makes communication pretty awesome. You know, genre criticism is, is, is near and dear to my heart in any way. And when you start looking at like concession speech, conventional analysis you know you got these tenets like this is what this is what they do this is what it is this is how it functions and i remember reading like this williard and and ritter piece on on john edwards and and how different he was in 04 with his concession speech and how he was talking about the fight goes on and he didn't really concede and john Kerry had to come and like clean it up and it was like this big brouhaha and i read your stuff and you're just like these third party folks they never concede. They, they're trying to blow it all up. And so it's just, I guess the question is, what do you see as the goal of a third party candidate? So I'll explain it in a couple of ways. I'll explain my epiphany where I decided like, I should look at this, right? So it was 2008, Barack Obama had just been elected and uh, Fox News was running a segment with a Shep Smith 
and they invited Ralph Nader to speak. And so Ralph Nader won under 1% of the popular vote in that race. So this is not Ralph Nader in 2000. It's sort of like Jose Canseco at 43, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's somebody who is well past his prime, uh, but still uh, on election night gets what, like five minutes on Fox News to talk about the race. And so Shep Smith brings him on because Ralph Nader had, I think he had tweeted that the question for Barack Obama, you know, the first African-American president elected, is not whether or not he will be, um, I think is whether he will be Uncle Sam for the people or Uncle Tom for the big corporations, right? And so uh, Shep Smith of Fox News brings him on and says like, what the hell are you doing, right? Um, here we have a historic moment and you're insinuating that the first black president might be an Uncle Tom. Uh, explain. And so, you know, at that moment, like Ralph Nader starts talking about, he pivots. So he starts talking about everything that he represents. He's talking about corporate corruption. He's talking about a Green New Deal, basically. He's talking about banks and their big power, lobbying. Uh, he starts inserting all of this stuff that's basically his, his, his platform issues. And it occurs to me, like, he doesn't care about angering people. As, as a matter of fact, this is a guy who received under 1%, and now he has five minutes on election night on Fox News to talk about what he represents. In other words, he cast out the fishing line and Fox News took it, right? Mm. Why is that important? It's important because third-party candidates almost always are blockaded by the media. That's because most journalists decide to cover political candidates based on how they expect them to do. The one way of short-circuiting that system is by being a, a provocateur finding ways of building good media attention, even if it's bad for you, it's time on the radio, it's time on the television that you otherwise wouldn't receive. Mm. So third-party candidates uh, as political outsiders, and I think this is being replicated by other people in the mainstream parties now. Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene mm -hmm. um, is uh, out there, she's fringe, but every time she says something incredibly stupid, uh, people are covering it. And that's exactly what she wants. So these fringe figures have figured out that they need to short circuit the system to get attention. Now, what do they aim to do? Third party candidates ultimately uh, are, are ideological at their core. Uh, they believe that some sort of political policy is being ignored by the two major parties. So they want to build attention for their own cause to apply pressure to the two parties to pick up their, system, uh, pick up their ideas. So case in point, uh, the federal deficit was Ross Perot's pinata, right? He brought that up every single moment he could. Uh, the debt, the debt, the debt, right? And now all of a sudden that became a talking point for Republicans until Trump, because uh, Trump didn't really believe that was a crisis. And then all of a sudden nobody else believed that it was a crisis. Uh, but then you have people like Jill Stein, who actually I think was one of the first that I heard talk about the Green New Deal over and over and over again. She was a potential spoiler for Hillary Clinton in 2016, even though that's a sort of debatable term. And what do you have now? You have every Democrat talking about the Green New Deal. That's what third party candidates are trying to do. They're trying to squeeze in their ideas so that they get co-opted by the two major parties. They do a couple of other things. They are trying to spoil elections so that they're perceived as a threat. Um, and when they're perceived as a threat, that co-optation uh, is triggered, right? But also sometimes third party candidates want to actually create a third party. Uh, they want more alternatives. Uh, they want to create a party system that's funded by taxpayers, uh, want to be a force in every election. It's really, really difficult to do. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that 
major party candidates are now wearing this this type of rhetoric as a cloak. And we we talk fringe, but seems like the the fringe is 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 coming to the forefront, whether it be, you know, the Tea Party or Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever. But it seems as if compromise is to hell with compromise and we're going for total annihilation. And so if if annihilation is the goal in a nation of 330 million people where you're not going to annihilate anybody, how do you even govern? So you can't, right? I think uh, a lot of I think a lot of political scholars have become in tune with demagoguery uh, and and sort of authoritarian political habits because that's that's the answer. When you scrape away any ability to deliberate between the parties or between all the different kinds of interests, when you peel away the possibilities of debate and deliberation and discussion, all you have then is a majority that rules, and then you have the loudest voice in the room that can essentially dominate them all. If that loudest voice is amplified by ideological media, you have a system of authoritarian rule under a democratic state, uh, which is not to say that it's akin to all other forms of authoritarianism, but it's aspiring authoritarianism. It's, it's trying to get the media in line. It's trying to get all other institutions that can serve as a check on the political system in line. And I think that that's as good as it can be until the next election, because we still have elections that, that technically work and so if you're still the loudest voice in the room, I think your next argument is to change the rules of elections so that you can have the upper hand in the next race. So the outsiders, I think, are somewhat different from those who are pursuing no compromise politics. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the outsiders have infiltrated the, the, specifically the Republican Party, and they have seen no compromise as their best chance. But I think it ultimately leads to a, a system of anti-democratic communication that uh, is a fundamental breakdown of government as we hoped it would work. Am I wrong? No. I don't think so. <laughs> no. And you wrote about how Trump, of course, didn't start this, but sort of made it more mainstream. And then we are in this place where we're not really looking for truth or we're not really respecting authority within institutions or even institutions. And then the rejection of deliberation sort of follows with that. So in what ways did Trump do that? And how are, how are you seeing that continue to play out with the way in which some in the Republican party are using the sort of the big lie or however you want to frame it around the 2020 election fraud to sort of use that to change the rules, essentially, to have the upper hand? Yeah, so I I think the key to understanding Trump's game is the idea of post-truth, right? It becomes the word of the year, according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 2016. And it happens after the 2016 election, where it's obvious that he was just lying through his teeth all the time. He was throwing out conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory, never taking ownership of the idea, simply saying like a lot of people believe this, when in fact, it's only the National Enquirer that believed it. And even then, it was like a fake news story. So I think uh, Trump over time trafficked in lies and tried to break down the distinction between verifiable facts and truth to the point that nothing really matters, right? Anything can be possible. And if anything can be possible, it becomes a game of charisma and it becomes a game of winning 
for your own specific interests. It has nothing to do with the marketplace of ideas, right? If Republicans believed in the marketplace of ideas, they debate critical race theory, they wouldn't try to eliminate it from institutions because mm. it's fundamentally antithetical to every libertarian principle they say they represent. So it's been in the process of tearing down truth. And once you tear down truth, you have to tear down the institutions that enforce it, right? So truth is always enforced by those on the outside who are perceived as being experts, as being having more authority than the people who are, are just our mere representatives in government. And so um, that's the media, uh, a fourth estate, uh, the watchdog. It's no coincidence that his, his line was fake news, fake news, fake news, so that at least for many of his supporters, there is a way of, of creating disbelief about what they were hearing as alternative stories about Trump, right? So he could shield them from whatever the media was saying. The moment that Republicans would challenge Trump, he would see them as uh, members of the deep state, right? So even in his own party, he is he's tearing down the institutions of checks and balances. I'd say Mitch McConnell's done a lot of important work for Donald Trump, but the moment that he pushed back on January 6th, uh, mm -hmm. Donald Trump had a lot of unkind things to say about Mitch McConnell. So over time, the Trump administration, specifically Donald Trump, but everybody around him, has been tearing down the institutions that serve as checks, the courts, our U.S. attorneys, state governments, uh, anybody who doesn't agree with him is a part of this deep state, right? And so it's like this umbrella conspiracy theory that he dumps in any opponents into to basically say that if you're uh, pro-Trump, you can be anti-everything else, which is anti-truth, which is anti-debate, which is anti-deliberation. The reason why a lot of political scholars thought that Trump would lose in 2016 was this is antithetical to how democracy works. Um, it didn't answer the, the sort of deep concerns that people had about his sense of ethics, his business practices, um, sort of his position on uh, a multiculturalism, his everything, right? Uh, uh, everything that he did violated the norms of democracy. But that at that current moment in time was a form of authenticity that allowed him to get elected because for so long he had been sort of uh, uh, portraying everybody in mainstream politics as part of a deep state that had sold out the country to globalists. So it became a quick way of deflecting any kind of negative criticism. Now, I think the question that you're asking is like, how did people follow up on this? Political scholars didn't think it would work. I don't think the Republican Party thought that it would work. And it worked in 2016. And then he passed a couple of major reforms, you know, a massive tax cut, pretty uh, egregious uh, uh, immigration reform, I would say, you know, for lack of a better word, I guess egregious works there. Uh, and so his form of communication worked in some ways, uh, at least to consolidate the party around a couple of issues that got them what they wanted. I think that because of media echo chambers following in line with Trump, I think other conservatives have thought that they can try the same tactics. And so I think Matt Gates is a wonderful example of somebody who's been dabbling into that methodology now. I mean, he, he uh, obviously is in a really massive scandal involving what was a 17-year-old uh, that he allegedly had sex with. His easiest way is to just say, uh, to defend himself, is to just say that uh, we can't really deliberate this because anybody bringing forth this accusation is a part of a deep state trying to tear down Republican government. That doesn't answer the charge, but he's still in office. Uh, he's still touring with Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
it's working, but I do think there are checks and balances on this loose approach to truth. And I think it's the court system. And I think justices don't really have any patience for lies because court is still court. Even ideologically appointed judges tend to push back on really bad lawsuits claiming that the election was a fraud. And so we see sort of this battle uh, that took place in four years. And I think that's going to be the battle of the next four years of, of how much they can chisel away at the court system. I think in our opinion, uh, pretty much the last uh, line of defense against people who are tearing apart truth and democracy. Absolutely. And it's June. So we're about to have our first view of what that looks like with the Supreme Court session decisions coming down. I think the big one that we have to watch is this Arizona recount um, mm-hmm. that's being orchestrated by the cyber ninjas. Yeah, These, these are people who are hired by uh, Roger Stone, the guy from overstock.com. I, I think his name's Roger Byrne, I forget. Not a major player in politics, but definitely from this right-wing circle. They're going to try to drum up this partisan narrative of the election in Arizona being stolen, right? So you're going to have, again, uh, conspiracy theories versus court decisions. I'm an optimist. I still think court decisions end up winning, but that is the test. Mm, Interesting. When you talked about the media and the media being an easy foil, one of the tenets you write about in third party rhetoric is we're going to blame the media for, you know, (laughs) losing and whatnot. And in in, in another article, you, you talk about containment rhetoric from the media, like the, the, the way that the media polices, people that they see as outside the norm. And I'm wondering if you see a backlash in the natural order of things that they're trying to uphold, because it's a bad time for hegemony right now. Like the people are standing back like, yeah, the establishment sucks for me. Like we have to go against it. And if you're, if the media is against you, then that means you're probably for me. Yeah. I, so if I hear you correctly, uh, I think you're asking, uh, go ahead reframe that real quick. Sure. So like, if the media is out here saying these outsiders are what's bad for the natural order of things, and they need to get more like the, they need to come into the fold, so to speak, and that's going to take their threat away. But the people who are voting for these folks, listening to these folks, being influenced by these folks are like, well, the establishment, as you say, is not helping me right now. I'm not happy with the establishment. My life sucks. And so I'm with these people. And the fact that you're against them helps me to be with them. All right. So I'll say this. Third parties have an advantage in their argument because most people do not like the two-party system. For decades, uh, we've had polls that indicate that more and more voters want uh, a third party, an independent choice, something that's an alternative to this binary that we're forced to, to, to vote for every single election, right? So uh, the media defending the establishment is never a great strategy and it never works to actually contain outsiders in the long run. Outsiders have adapted though. Outsiders who have decided to run as third party candidates in the past have come into the fold and primary mainstream candidates to bring outsider voices into the mainstream parties. It's why we have uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's why we had Steve King from Iowa, right? It's why uh, the Pauls have existed in the Republican Party. They have a lot of appeal because they're the outsider Republicans or Democrats who are challenging the party from within. But that's the best we can get because 
the mainstream media typically won't cover them if they run as a third party candidate in a presidential race or a congressional race, except for Maine. If you have ranked choice voting, you are going probably going, you're, you're going to cover the independent candidate. So I, I think one thing I hear you saying, or, or I would add to what you're saying is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of uh, uh, the media basically saying these outsiders shouldn't belong and trying to quiet them. They quiet them to the, to the point that they become louder and more influential and perhaps more dangerous because they start challenging the way that government works by taking it on and then trying to, I would say in some ways, destroying government, destroying deliberation, destroying uh, uh, media trust, right? Um, so by blockading outsider voices, they just drive outsiders back into the system, which gives them more voice, which creates, I think, more authority in checking the media that is typically aligned with two-party interests. I, I think the, the media has helped create the rise of outsiders, uh, and it's also helped create the rise of outsiders because it loves provocateurs, right? Uh, there's nothing better than a Trump tweet. Um, even though a lot of people hate it, it's easy to cover. It's, it's, it's low cost. Uh, and it can eat up 15 minutes of time of just people interpreting what it is and why it's crazy. And so the media has created rules that has allowed outsiders to thrive while at the same time trying to crush any kind of outsider dissent. I just jotted down some names of some people that I think have eyes toward 2024. Just jotted, just, just for grins, right? So we got Mike Pompeo, we got Paul Ryan, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Ron DeSantis, Trump, Pence. On that list, I don't think any one of them would claim to be anything other than an outsider, even though they're as establishment as establishment can be. Like, how do you how do you see these politicians walking this line and being this outsider within and pushing back? I, I'm writing a book about this. Uh, it started with my dissertation. It's the book that just never ended. Um, and <laughs> it's really the idea of how outsider politics have infiltrated mainstream uh, politics and how third parties have essentially become mainstream political figures, although they're within the mainstream parties now. Interesting. I would trace this back to a couple of key moments. I trace it back to uh, the 1980 campaign where uh, uh, libertarians were running their strongest presidential candidate. I think his name was Ed Koch. No, it was Ed Clark. And on Ed Clark's ticket was a guy named, I think it was uh, uh, David Koch uh, of the Koch brothers, right? And so Koch brothers from Kansas, some of the richest people in America, uh, wanted to infiltrate, um, or not infiltrate, challenge conservative thinking by presenting a third option of a libertarian ticket. Failed miserably, right? Even though they got basically 1% and they considered that to be successful, it wasn't enough of a challenge. So in the 1980s and 1990s, what do you see? You see Koch brother money going into mainstream politics. You see Koch brother money going into uh, conservative think tanks to bring libertarian ideas into mainstream conservative politics. And I think all of that leads up to uh, 2010 and the rise of the Tea Party. I think by the time you get the Tea Party, you get an assault on mainstream, I guess we would call them statesmen. You know, that's a, a gendered term. But people who actually become a part of politics, be a part of the deliberation to make government work for the people. The problem with that from a libertarian standpoint is that it creates big government. It, it promotes a welfare state. Uh, it taxes sort of the wealth earners in our country. 
And so what Koch Brother Outsider Money does starting in 2000, uh, the 2010s is assaulting mainstream political figures by portraying them as sellouts. And I think in Trump's terms by 2016, a part of the deep state, uh, members of mainstream government who are representing interests that are antithetical to the interests of the common everyday person. It's a way of infusing populism into like a conservative uh, cause. By 2010, it was uncool to be somebody who wanted to run for government to make government work, right? Mm -hmm. It became essential to pose yourself as an outsider. And the more outsider you can look, the more authentic you look. And so that's why in 2016, Jeb Bush, with an exclamation point, was supposed to be the front runner for a little while and then got totally and completely emasculated and humiliated by Donald Trump. Uh, and pretty much disposed of in a matter of weeks. Why? Because Jeb Bush was representative, uh, a representative of the uh, establishment. And the establishment was representative of making politics work for the people. But that wasn't cool anymore. But it wasn't cool dating back uh, to, I'd say, 2010. You could probably say a little bit earlier, too. Um, so all these people are sort of taking that mantle, although they're establishment figures. They've been in government forever. It's impossible to say you're an outsider when you've been a you know, two-term governor, or you've been a member of the House of Representatives, or even the president, right? You cannot claim to be an outsider when you've been in the White House for four years. That's not how power works. Right. And so um, it becomes this, this molding of an outsider aesthetic. And what it really means for some of these people is to say the most outrageous thing possible that would, in, in previous years, mean that you were unelectable. Right. Indicate that you don't care about looking electable, but the more unelectable you look, the more appealing you are to people who are looking for uh, an outsider political candidate. So some can do this will. Well, Nikki Haley is not going to stand up and sound like an idiot. I don't think that's in her DNA, right? Um, you might disagree with her politics and think that, that she's not, you know, always savvy, but she is not going to do what Trump does. Uh, and she's not going to win. Mm -hmm. And so in this current moment, at least for Republicans, you have to be able to out Trump Trump and try to be the most outsider you can be. And I think there are people who have happily uh, accepted that challenge. I think Josh Hawley. I think Tom Cotton from my state of Arkansas. Uh, I think uh, uh, they're not going to enter the race uh, if Donald Trump does. But I do think... Uh, um, you know, the Florida governor is, is trying to be Trump light, but I don't think he's necessarily embracing the same outsider tactics. He's just embracing mm. libertarian conservative politics at the state level. Mm. So will that work? It won't out Trump Trump. It's not authentic outsider politics, but it is sort of suggesting that you don't care about the checks and balances. And, and uh, even though that would make you unelectable in years past, uh, right now it's, it's the, uh, it's the politics of the moment, right? Especially for conservatives. And you talk about how, you know, Nikki Haley can't play that card, but certain people can and it works for them and others can't. How do you see what you're talking about here connecting to some of the masculinity research you've done and, and tying that to sort of white supremacy and white nationalism and who can say really offensive outlandish things and who it would actually end their campaign? So I think... Um, when you get the rise of outsiders infiltrating mainstream politics in 2010, it's also happening at the same time that internet culture is flourishing. 
And mm -hmm. so uh, at that time, you have YouTube uh, uh, that is basically taking off and you have the dawn of the viral video. You have the dawn of the viral tweet. And there becomes a recipe to going viral, right? Going viral means being outrageous. It means being funny. It means sometimes being funny in an outrageous way that is catering to a very specific group, right? That will find it funny and everybody else thinks it's offensive and terrible. But this is the micro-targeting of politics that happens, I'd say starting with George W. Bush, but really takes off in the 2000 teens when I think Trump realizes that he uh, could potentially craft a winning ticket by just catering to his base. But you have to really drive out the base. So what drives out the base? Defensive things that might be considered to be offensive in previous years. And so uh, Trump really discovers that he can own his masculinity in 2016. Sex scandals used to be the, the death knell of any politician, right? So I always go back to Gary Hart in, uh, what was it, 2000, sorry, 1984, I think it was, right? Um, Radio Lab has a great podcast, uh, specifically uh, an episode on Gary Hart and the rise of the sex scandal. And he's like hounded by the media and realizes that he's been caught cheating and it's over, right? So between 1984 and 2016, candidates are just destroyed by sex scandals. By 2016, Donald Trump is, is caught in this Access Hollywood tape moment. He already has this playboy personality that everybody knows about dating back from the 1980s and the tabloids that gave Trump the rise of Trump. But, you know, with the Access Hollywood tape, he, he pivots from apologizing to basically uh, attacking his accusers to then sort of owning the fact that he could have any woman he wants. And if the woman wasn't attractive, there's no way he would have pushed himself on her. That's bracketing all of the accusations about sexual misconduct and really just focusing on his own masculinity and, and the fact that he could take whatever he wants whenever he wants it, but it'd have to be worth it, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm. what you see in the weeks after that is Trump supporters showing up at political rallies and sort of launching a full-out assault on the media. I think there's an incident in Cincinnati where uh, I think it's Jim Acosta is, is basically attacked in the middle of a Trump rally, not physically attacked, but verbally assaulted in the ways that Trump supporters are really good at. And in that rally is a woman wearing a t-shirt that says, Trump can grab my, and then has an arrow pointing down to her private part. Mm. It comes a clear moment for me that there was an embrace of sort of this offensive, toxic masculinity that in past years would have destroyed political candidates, but becomes a part of an inside joke, a, a form of toxic sort of humor, racist, white supremacist, I would say sort of hyper-masculine humor that pulls people into the cause. And so one thing that we have seen people do since, since this moment is gravitating towards this toxic masculinity, right? As a way of pulling the base together. And so I think nobody does this better than Eric Greitens of Missouri. Mm. Uh, he releases, I think in 2000, I think it's 2016, his own ads that are bringing in gun culture and his own toxic masculinity. He's a, a Navy SEAL. And so in these ads, all he's doing is just wearing like a tight t-shirt and he's ripped. 
He's attractive. <laughs> and he's just firing these guns. There's no point, right? There's just like the, I'm Eric Greitens and I shoot guns. <laughs> <laughs> he's got this mischievous smile and he's sort of like winking to the camera. And it becomes ridiculous when you show this to your students. They're like, what did I just watch? And you're like, you just watched a fusion of masculinity politics, outsider authenticity, and sort of trolling and and viral media culture all blending in together. Eric Greitens does this, and eventually we know that he's like one of the worst governors in the country. Uh, He gets taken down in his own sex scandal because his former hairdresser claims that Uh, He assaulted her in his basement while his wife was away. Uh, He steps down from office because of that and another scandal. But get this, he's running for the U.S. Senate seat that is going to be left by, I think, Roy Blunt. Of course he is. Um, He is one of the leading candidates in that race. And so this kind of politics is mainstream. It gets people elected. And in Missouri, this makes you a tour de force. And can you just share the title of that article where you dive into some of that? Because... I, I Googled the first part of it to look for it and, and Google gave me some different results first. So oh. I was like, let's, we, let's fill up the whole <laughs> title. I can't remember the second part of the title, but the first uh, part of the title in academia, you know, we always try to find something sort of playful before the colon comes. So this is uh, uh, whipping it out, right? It's whipping it out, <laughs> politics and ads. And we do that not to just so sort good. of have like a, 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 a you know, a, a phallic joke, but it's because the ads are so phallic um, mm-hmm. and they're operating based on the humor of they know what you know the gun means. Here's my gun. Here's my gun, right? And it's sort of like frat boy humor and they embrace it. They lean into it um, and it becomes a, a, a sort of embodiment of their own kind of masculinity politics that is very much tied to white culture. There's a moment, especially in the early rise of these ads, where a candidate will look at the camera and then just flash their gun uh, and flash it. And sometimes the genre becomes playful, like people try to outdo the previous one. And so you'll notice that some of the other ads start showing the gun like in the full screen for as long as they possibly can. So you can't turn away from it. And so the, the flash of the gun and the phallus becomes a part of the art form of these ads because they are trying to be more and more outrageous than the previous one. It actually started with this guy, we claim, named Dale Peterson, who was running for an agricultural secretary position in Alabama. Um, He ran a really outrageous ad that Funny or Die spoofed, and then it became really, you know, viral in that moment. I think this is 2009, 2010. And, you know, his is a quick flash of the gun, but everybody understood what that meant. And every comedian was playing with that uh, and they knew exactly what it was. But then we had Joe Manchin, who's the, you know, centrist running in West Virginia, who runs his own version of that ad. And then it all just leads to the Eric Greitens and eventually even the Marjorie Taylor Greens, who are like, I can out Greitens Greitens, mm-hmm. who's representing her own kind of like white, you could call it white masculinity politics. because That's what I think it is. But it's definitely a form of white culture performed at a political stage. I'm reminded that Marjorie Taylor Greene in the primary, she was the, the the person who got the second most votes to her was like a doctor, uh, a, a a deacon, 
a Bible school teacher and super let's build that wall and I'm down with all these Trump policies. And so really the only thing that separated them two was like QAnon. And in a district of like 700,000 people, they went with her. And so I'm like, I okay, fine. Like, okay, you're the lightning rod for this stuff. But eventually we got to just be like, hey, yo, that district in Georgia, that's what they want. And you know, 74 million people voted for, the, for, 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 for Donald Trump. To what extent is that just what they want? So, so I think it's a dominant master narrative uh, that QAnon and conspiracy culture, especially by right-wing uh, uh, politics, offers. It's the idea that for white people, your culture has been stifled. Your life has been taken from you. Government has worked against you. The, uh, I use this in quotation marks, but the trauma that you feel is real, that you haven't been able to talk about it, but we are now creating that place where you can talk openly about being left behind. I think that the more a political candidate in specific districts takes on that narrative, it becomes right. the narrative that dominates any kind of policy position. Um, the policy positions mm -hmm. don't matter. It becomes the narrative that you offer supporters because that tells you or tells the voter what kind of politician you're going to be. And here's the thing. I'll put an asterisk on this. Political conspiracy theories and this sort of outsider authenticity works, but it does have its limits, right? I think that where it becomes obvious that you're a distraction for your district, you're a distraction for your country, you're a constant embarrassment, and you can't solve a crisis, you become a liability even to your base. And so I think that Donald Trump turned out a record number of Republicans, but he also turned out a record number of independents and Democrats who... Uh, I'd say 10% of Republicans who have uh, voted for him and then went to Joe Biden did so because government no longer worked for them, right? And mm -hmm. so Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, uh, is, I would say, our new Steve, uh, Steve King. Uh, she will take the low-hanging fruit every chance she gets to say the most offensive thing possible to create as much outrage as possible. And it works for creating attention, but it doesn't showcase that she can do anything other than be in front of a camera. That was Steve King. I don't know what Steve King did uh, uh, in his district of Iowa, but he really specialized in angering a lot of people by taking on the mantle of white supremacy, which he called Western civilization or whatever you want to call it because he didn't consider it to be offensive. His voters eventually got embarrassed and tired of it. There became a better alternative and I think that happens in national politics all the time. Um, I think as uh, mainstream media tends to cover these people and give them lots of attention, I think the voters eventually get tired of it. And so how long is that cycle? I think Steve King was elected, re-elected at least a couple of times, maybe three times. Marjorie Taylor Greene may be with us for a while, but I do think ultimately her politics will cease to be popular at some moment in time, especially as it's obvious that she hasn't done much as a representative. As a matter of fact, she's been thrown off all of her committees mm -hmm. and she just specializes in outrage. I think that's pretty mm -hmm. easy to primary with the right kind of candidate. Do you think it requires some sort of very serious moment in our country or some sort of crisis to shift back to, okay, government shouldn't be a joke? Yeah, coronavirus, mm. right? Um, for example? <laughs> yeah, I think if you're a small business owner, you're probably upset about the mask mandate. You're probably upset about people not coming into your business, but you're also watching the president to lead the country and make your life better, right? 
And uh, his messaging was inconsistent. It was at times uh, uh, in fantasy land. And his messaging was not improving the situation. And so I think most Republicans were still supporting Donald Trump, but I think there was a sliver that uh, were given some pause, especially as they were watching how he could govern in a crisis. And as, a ma- uh, as we could tell, it was very good, uh, which opened up you know, the possibility of somebody who was moderate and pragmatic dealing the show. And that's how Joe Biden de- decided to position himself. You know, Democrats can have feelings about that as well. Uh, but it became the winning message because all you had to beat was a message of, I can't fix coronavirus by myself. Uh, especially when your 2016 election uh, message was, I alone can fix it. By 2020, mm-hmm. it was really obvious that he alone could not fix it. So uh, populists and outsiders can drum up whatever grand narrative they want, but they're constantly going to be tested by the big crisis. Mm -hmm. And for Donald Trump, it was the coronavirus mixed with an economic crisis, which couldn't be fixed by simply scapegoating China. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you write about that I thought was so important and made me reflect a bit is how dismissive we can be about people who... um, believe in conspiracies and how a lot of the early research kind of considers them as a some fringe group. But really there's more research now that shows that the the rhetoric behind conspiracies are targeting a broad audience. So when a broader audience adheres to these beliefs, it's not because they're a bunch of dummies. It's because that was kind of the goal of that. And so why do you think it's important, one, that we take a, a more expanded view to help us to understand conspiracies? And then I guess as a follow-up, sorry, I'm like going to ask you seven questions in a row just to make it really simple to answer. And then what challenges does that present sort of for a government response to try to push back on those? Okay, so I would say that there's a really important difference to make uh, for people who are trying to understand conspiracy theories. And it's the difference between a conspiracy believer and a conspiracy sympathizer. Mm. A conspiracy believer is going to be the one who creates the documentaries on how 9-11 9-11 was an inside job. Barack Obama, you know, is a, uh, was born in Kenya. And, and all the people who are circulating that content basically saying this is the truth. Those are believers. And we have stigmatized uh, conspiracy believers as wearing tinfoil hats and thinking the aliens are trying to do some sort of mind control. Okay, those people exist. They've always existed. They've always been perpetuating conspiracy theories. Conspiracy sympathizers are those who are circulating the content and saying it's possible right? That a conspiracy theory is plausible. The question becomes, why do people think that a particular conspiracy theory that's going mainstream at the moment is plausible and they sympathize with its sort of core beliefs, but not necessarily, not necessarily its factual claims? It's because it's offering some sort of broader political ideology that speaks to the people that we already lack trust in. Who do we lack trust in? For a lot of people, especially in this polarized moment, it's the other party. It's maybe uh, uh, the dominant political figures of the other party. It could be big corporations. It could be uh, 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 Rudy Giuliani. You know, it could be a whole range of actors that you don't like, that you don't trust, that you believe are capable of great evil, right? But you don't really want to get caught up in the weeds of the facts of a conspiracy theory, but you're more than happy to share it to your millions of followers on Twitter and Instagram. And so that's what we see with celebrities oftentimes as amplifiers of conspiracy culture. Uh, They'll watch some sort of 
fringe conspiracy video about how coronavirus is caused by 5G. They'll share it and say, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying it's making a lot of good claims. The claims are trash. Makes you think. What, yeah, it makes you think. But what they're really speaking to is a broader mistrust for uh, big corporations, uh, a globalization that has left people behind, for people who have allowed globalization to take place and change their lives. That is, is the, the glue of a conspiracy theory as it becomes a mainstream movement for truth. I put truth in quotation marks here because it's offering a counter truth that's appealing to a lot of people. Now, the more we dismiss this, the more we allow this to flourish without understanding it and uh, without understanding how to respond. By the time 2016 happened and, and we had President Trump after months of declaring that uh, global warming was a hoax, that Barack Obama had years of declaring that Barack Obama was not a legitimate president, claiming that Ted Cruz's dad was a second gunman on the grassy knoll, right? All these farcical conspiracy theories it became obvious that we didn't understand conspiracy culture, especially as Alex Jones started showing up to the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention, uh, got, you know, scored a major interview with Donald Trump as a candidate. None of that should have happened uh, in, in a regular election year, but it indicates that we've made a turn. Why we need to understand this is we need to understand the best ways to respond, right? And that's not easy. So the best ways of respond might be uh, interfering with the kinds of media ecosystems that allow conspiracy cultures to, to flourish. Uh, it might be trying to enhance or create more government trust. I think Joe Biden's trying to do that. I don't know if that works long-term, but Joe Biden's uh, mission is to persuade Americans that the government can work for them again, right? Mm -hmm. That's one possible mission. I think that there are people kicking the tires on reintroducing the fairness doctrines, uh, uh, making sure that uh, ideological media is reined in a little bit. That has no legs. But there are a lot of ideas thrown around uh, that have to be seriously considered if we're going to challenge conspiracy culture because nobody thought that January 6th could happen. Mm -hmm. But anybody watching Outsiders work for a decade or two would have known that that was sort of in the making for a long time. You talk about the structure of, of the American democracy being socialized to a two-party system and that, you know, this divergence law, like if, if, if I don't think a candidate can win, then voting for somebody else is throwing away my vote. A lot of us classify ourselves as independents, but there's, there's just no, something happens between our independence and the ballot box. Like what, what do you, what do you make of that? Uh, I, I think it's pragmatism, and I think it's the product of uh, uh, American culture enforcing loyalty to a two-party system that may not serve everyone's best interests, but you're told every presidential election year that it's the best system that we have, and uh, voting in any other way is really just selling out your own interests, right? So um, there are a lot of things that happen between uh, when we decide to vote for somebody who's not a Democrat or Republican and the moment that we actually cast the ballot. Um, that's that we watch a candidate very closely. And uh, a lot of third parties have a hard time attracting mainstream political figures just because they're bound to lose. Even when they do pull in mainstream political figures, those mainstream political figures do not do well, right? Um, so I think about Gary Johnson and the Libertarian ticket, and this is 2016, right? 
where uh, he was a former governor of New Mexico. It was New Mexico, right? Pretty popular in that state. Uh, uh, he was charismatic enough. He had a pro-marijuana policy that made him like a little bit more interesting than the other two candidates. Uh, but he didn't know where Aleppo was, right? In the middle of the Syrian uh, civil war. And so in that kind of moment, um, it became obvious that he did, he lacked the chops of somebody who could run sort of a large federal government that requires a foreign policy. At least he was, he was in a position that made people question. Now, the media amplified that mistake over and over and over again, which between the mistake and the election always creates a, a major drop in public opinion polls for the third party candidate. The other thing that happens is usually the presidential debates. Presidential debates solidify uh, um, public opinion uh, uh, heading into election day. Third party candidates have almost always been removed from the debate stage because they can't make 5% or 10% of, of, of an average of public opinion polls. So when they're taken off the debate stage at the major moment when everyone's watching or, or tuning in to presidential politics, they're not seen as a credible option. So if I love Jill Stein's politics um, and I, I, I envision a new green deal and perhaps democratic socialism, I don't see voting for her in an election to be uh, uh, a good use of my ballot if she has no chance of winning, right? That's how a voter will process this, this idea of the wasted ballot. I can't waste my ballot on somebody who has no chance of being elected. Now, there are other reasons to cast a ballot. You have to sometimes think casting a ballot is sending a message to the two major parties that there's something that you care about more than winning an election that you think that they should take on in future races. And I think that the more the outsiders turn out, the more power they have in future elections of having their issues co-opted. But it's hard to be attached to that when mainstream media and then all of your friends are telling you that you're wasting your ballot and you're an idiot, right? Mm -hmm. And that your vote has major implications. And if you're throwing away your ballot on this candidate, you obviously don't care about these people, these people, and these causes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes too much for most outsiders uh, or, or, or people who don't support the two, two major parties. It becomes too much for them to handle by election day. So it takes a really stubborn voter to really stick with their ideological preferences. And most of the time it doesn't happen. Uh, there's a lot of hyperbole about the influence of third parties in every presidential election. You'll see polls come out that say, Gary Johnson's polling at 16%. And you have to tell yourself, well, it's just the poll. Mm -hmm. It's taken in one moment with a very specific framing uh, of, of the question. And Gary Johnson is not going to get more than 2% in any given race. So uh, right. it just happens in every single election, except for Ross Perot. When you have billions of dollars to buy your own media, uh, you can sort of keep the momentum moving. Unless you're Bloomberg. <laughs> yeah, unless you're Bloomberg. <laughs> Isn't that great? He got Elizabeth Warren and that was Oof. a wrap. She was like, ooh, a billionaire for me to crash. Yeah. She was I so ready. <laughs> now, there's nothing appealing about him. Um, I think he probably could have run a Perot-type campaign, um, mm -hmm. and that could have had some success, but probably not in 2020. 2020 was a uh, hyper-polarized election where the choice between two parties was, was pretty drastic, right? Especially in the moment of an economic crisis and global pandemic something that hasn't been seen since the uh, uh, Spanish flu. It was a pretty historic election that really didn't create space for a third party. Yeah.
Howie Hawkins was the Green Party candidate. Most people don't know that name. Right. I was like, who? Yeah. All right. If you have no limitations whatsoever, what's the next thing you would research? Well, I've got this book idea that I've been working on for a while, and I just really dedicated myself to other stuff. So a lot of the things that we're talking about, third parties, I think to understand third parties requires an understanding of the history of third parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, political scientists have been doing that research for a while, but I think uh, we need to talk about the historical evolution of the communication style of third parties, what it's done, how it's created a, a style of infiltrating uh, uh, mainstream politics, how it's tied to a history of containment of outsider voices. Um, that's the book that I'm working on right now that ultimately I've, I've always wanted to finish. And I think that's the, uh, the ne- next big thing. I'd read that book. Yeah, I hope a lot of people <laughs> yeah. will. Um, there's a second book that I, I there are a couple books that I, I want to write. Uh, another one is about, I'm really interested in, in, in conspiracy cultures, sort of mainstream relevance alongside media deregulation, especially since the 1980s. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that it could be said that you could trace the influence of media deregulation on conspiracy culture with the rise of the Clintons. Mm. Um, I think the Clintons attract conspiracy culture in VHS form. They attract conspiracy culture from the rise of Rush Limbaugh and and, and Matt Drudge. Um, And then, you know, there are still Clinton conspiracies in the rise of, of Twitter. And I think all of those forms of media do something different to contribute to conspiracy culture. And so the book that I I envision about the Clintons is that the Clintons weren't different from any other political dynasty, right? The problem for the Clintons was that their rise was at the same time that media deregulation created sort of a hornet's nest of conspiracy culture, which made us think that the Clintons were were the most problematic, uh, corrupt dynasty in politics. That's not true, right? But deregulation allowed that conspiracy culture to thrive and to take many different forms, especially as the Clintons sort of changed their power positions, right? Especially between Bill and Hillary. And so I want to write that book, right? That really traces uh, early conspiracy culture at the local level uh, to people holding sandwich boards and protesting Bill Clinton as a, 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 you know, a, a candidate for governor, all the way to sort of the Twitter conspiracy theories and the, the rise of Trump. All right. Dr. Neville Shepard, what is the quote of the month? Uh, a lot of uh, the reason why I got into what I got into, and I think you asked me this question at the beginning, you know, track your, 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 your interests. Why did you do what you did? That's because I've always been attracted to the responsible use of communication and government, right? Mm-hmm. I think that for me, it goes all the way back to the classics. It goes all the way back to Cicero and De Invencione where he uh, uh, opens the whole text by saying, wisdom without eloquence does too little for the good of communities, but eloquence without wisdom is in most instances extremely harmful and never beneficial. I think it sounds better in the original language, but I think it really speaks to the idea of, of communication is power, but we have to use it responsibly. A lot of what I've been looking at is outsiders who uh, for good reasons have been trying to put pressure on the system, but the outsiderness gets co-opted by other people who have motives that aren't quite as good, right? And so I think it goes all the way back to the Greeks who understood 
uh, the power of, of, of the communication that we practice in government. This has been This Is For The CV. Thanks for listening, Mom. This Is For The CV is a Larson and Lestrat production. Editing done by Rebecca Larson. Music performed by Issa Black. Thanks, man.